I, uh, I'm the family ministry director here. That's the privilege and honor that I have. It's an absolute joy. I get to, uh, to oversee and lead and serve that big, beautiful man who just walked off stage, Will Gaines, our youth director. So I echo everything he said about youth camp. And then Ernest O'Dunsey, our kids director, does an awesome job um, leading and serving our kids downstairs. And then Daniel jo- Danielle Johnson, uh, uh, who leads and serves our nursery. And then Shelby as well, who helps out with our admin. So that's our family team. And um, we're partnering with parents to raise kids who love God, love people, and push back darkness. And um, God's doing some really cool thing, things among like infants all the way up to 18. Sometimes you can't tell the difference between infants and 18, but that's a whole nother deal. Um, so I just want to say first off, before we get into the word together, that it has been, um, it's just been beautiful how you all have um, received me and my family. Not, not just the connection and friendships, um, but just even responsiveness to us and our leadership. Um, the, your hearts, we, we, this season, we got here about eight months ago, has just been so sweet and so rich for, for me and for our, our family. And so thank you for the way you have, um, you've received us and um, you welcomed us in. Um, okay, so this morning, we are going to talk about the goodness of God, what we sung about, what Justin prayed about. Um, so turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm 73, um, it's right in the middle of the Bible. So crack that open, and they are songs, they are prayers of the people of God that God has preserved throughout history for us to read. And uh, I would say... Next to the book of John, um, which is my favorite book in the Bible. This is like my second favorite book in the Bible. And there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, these, these guys enjoy God. I mean, and not just like a little bit they enjoy God, like, like a lot. Like, do this for me. Just think of something that you really enjoy. That you just, I mean, you love it. Okay, that thing that came into your mind, that, that's it. So go with that. For me, that's Oreo cookies. Um, there is, it's like the eighth wonder of the world in many respects, and I've been eating them since I was a child, and I have no shame, no shame whatsoever with the Oreos. The whole fake chocolate thing, no shame about that. It's glorious. With the, the mix of the creamy whipped lard, um, and, and then it's not just a cookie, but then there is this some sort of divine invention about how milk would work really well with the Oreo, and you drown it until all the air bubbles are out. This is how you do it, I'm telling you. And then it's like redemption. You rescue the thing out from the milky, milky grave, and you, you know, drop it in. Try it if you haven't. There's just one word, Glory. Right? So think about that thing that you really enjoy and imagine your soul enjoying God like that. We were wired up to enjoy God like that. And the psalmist do. It's like this crazy over the talk kind of, is this phony preacher talk kind of things like his love is better than life. I mean, really? 
Um, better is one day with him than a thousand anywhere else. Really? There's even a command in Psalm 37. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. Enjoy God. We're commanded to enjoy God. That's not a pipe dream, y'all. That's possible. But there's this perception of people who come to places like this on a, on a Sunday morning, right? That we're just trying to do our best impression of Ned Flanders and the Simpsons. Anyone? We're still, we're still trying to spread the Simpsons joy, Josh. Um, you know, like you come here to keep up appearances or stay on God's good side, that, that kind of thing. But, but that's not what this church is about. The church is about um, gathering a messed up, broken, sinful people who've experienced God's goodness in the middle of our badness. We're not perfect, but we're pardoned and we get together and remind ourselves and celebrate how good God is and of the gospel. True? That's why we, one of the reasons why we gather. Now, the second reason I love the Psalms is the absolute flip side of that. Um, It's these songs and these prayers, it's not like happy, happy, joy, joy all the time, right? It's not these trite, shallow platitudes about God and about life that aren't rooted in the ugly realities of life. These are like raw, honest, in-your-face musical prayers that are talking about like the sin of the streets and the brokenness of the soul. It's like... You read some of these psalms and you think, can you say that to God? You know? And some of you all in this room, in this moment, are in places like that, that are raw, that are in your face. And one of the things I love about our church, and really, frankly, I need in our church, is that um, we're a people who gladly welcome anyone who has dark and difficult questions about God, really the hard ones, right? Those aren't just tolerated, they're invited, they're welcomed, right? Because frankly, the world is just cruel to the bone. It's cold, it's dark, and can feel like God's not around. And if he is, he's not helping out a whole lot. Some of you are there. And I just want to pause in this spot and recognize that Maybe a lot of you in places of suffering, losses. Um, if you're honest, you're, you're in here hanging by a thread. Maybe loss of you know, children, infertility or miscarriage. It might be a lost husband or wife, broken relationship or divorce. Um, lost health in your body or someone in your family. Might even just be in this season, you re, you're realizing you didn't have the dad or mom that you thought you had, or maybe they died too soon. Too soon. Talking to a lot of you over the last eight months, many of you I know are in places like that. And so the the invitation is to ask the hard questions. Right? You're not tolerated. You're not annoying to God, but He invites that. So this morning. That's what we're going to do, is we're going to engage this question by tracking through a guy's journey, his story, um, 
And he, it was like he realized at a deeper level the goodness of God, but it didn't come like through the, you know, the pumpkin spice macchiato morning, you know, your quiet time with the birds chirping in the breeze, not blowing too hard, you know, and there's like no bad smells, you know, that kind of moment. That's not this. This is like um, someone breaking into your home in the middle of the night and just whacking you on the back of the head. The experience this guy goes through, which many of you can identify with, it's disorienting, it's painful. You wonder, is God good? Okay, so Psalm 73. Who is the writer? What's this guy all about? Well, you see at the top it says a psalm of Asaph. So that's the writer. And he's um, got a normal Jewish name, right? Asaph. That's like Jim. Okay? But he's like a really big deal in the nation of Israel. He is one of the three top worship pastors for the whole nation. He loves God. He's spiritually mature. Um, He's a leader. He's got influence. And what I want you to do is, as we're looking through his story, I want you to listen to the pieces that God is highlighting for you in your heart and your life. Okay? So the first thing is, what, what happened well, first off, you're going to see this blanket statement in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So overarching all this is this statement that God is good. That's the foundation of his faith, right? Then you look in verse 2, and he moves from this general statement to personal. Here's the story. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped. So he's saying, I know God is good to the nation. I I know that he's good to other people, but something went down that so rocked me, that was so wrong, that I almost bailed. I almost just ditched the whole thing. It was so painful. I really questioned the goodness of God in my heart. I wondered if, if I bet on the wrong horse here. I mean, you need to hear, this is Israel's worship pastor saying this. And then they sang it. And then God kept it in his book for us. So again, do you hear loudly and clearly if you feel like embarrassed or isolated or like you're the only one, there's an invitation to ask your questions. There's some of the godliest people in history who have, who have gone there. Is God good to me? What is the good life really? You know, think Moses, think Job, think David, think John the Baptist, even Jeremiah wrote an entire book of the Bible dealing with this very question. So God is saying yes to you in your heart. Now, he's not going to give us the details of the who, what, when, and where, but he's going to give us a snapshot of his heart condition. Okay, And as we're tracking through this, again, 
Look into your own heart. You may not be in a place of this sort of suffering or brokenness, but these things may be streaming through your heart anyway. So let's look at the, there's four things. Starting in verse three, what went down? Well, he was, he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This isn't like, you know, an hour long binge of, you know, the black hole of Facebook and Twitter sort of jealousy, right? Um, this, this is Asaph experiencing something that was so cruel to the bone. He saw his life isn't going the way it should. He looked at people who are less committed or not committed to God. And it's not out there. It's people in the temple. And he gets fired up. You know that word prosperity, you see? That's actually the word shalom. And that is a word pregnant with meaning for a Jewish person. Shalom was the state of the the Garden of Eden before the fall. There was perfection. There was beauty. There was fulfillment. There was intimacy. There was communion, both with God and with one another. It's what was broken and what the Jewish people longed for to be restored at the end of time, right? It's everything needed for man's highest good. So shalom was the ideal. And here he says, I envied the shalom of the wicked. So he said, God, you turn the covenant upside down and it's not right. Sinners are being blessed and saints are being cursed. And it made him doubt really deeply. Jealousy can get fueled for him clearly and for us by a couple of things. Number one, you see in verse four and five, it's appearances that seem true but aren't. It says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Two things you don't normally find. Talk about the human body, fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So is that true? Do people have, don't have those kinds of problems? Well, clearly it's not true. He's not being objective. Right? But appearances lie circumstances lie and we can get caught up in the gears of comparison where other people don't have these problems relationally, financially, on and on. It can also be fueled by just genuine injustices. Look at verse 6. The next six verses he talks about this. He says, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. That's not just nice poetry. That's coming from something that happened to him. There's violence. Maybe that's verbal violence, some sort of slander, some sort of verbal abuse, someone taking advantage of him or, or using him in business or in relationship. Right? We, don't, we don't know, but it's some sort of violence. By the way, because everyone is arrogant, anyone qualifies for someone you can envy or compare yourself to. And that's what's streaming through his heart. The question is, how is that streaming through your heart? What's happening when it comes to envy and comparison? The second thing you see is in verse 13, it's, it's anger. 
He is angry. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying living life under God and for God does not pay. Because God overlooks crime. He's he's sacrificed in obscurity while God sat on the sidelines and he's just, he's had enough. Do you you hear this little tinge of self-pity in it? Self-pity is one of those really hidden, buried sins, right? Something's gone wrong, like even really wrong. And uh, it feels absolutely justified because you're not feeling any mercy from God. So you just turn to yourself to get some. Self-pity isn't isn't rooted in humility. It's not rooted in godliness. Self-pity is wounded pride. It's... It's unbelief in the goodness of God and a very strong belief that you're entitled to a better outcome. I deserve better. And it actually is kind of nice-sounding victim language that's really self-centered, turning to ourselves for the mercies that we can give ourselves. The third thing we see um, besides envy and anger is confusion. Verse 16 But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. The best translation there would be, it it was oppressive to me. I mean, the questions bouncing back and forth from this circumstance. Did I miss it? What did I do? What's God about? Did I disqualify myself? Did I do something wrong? Did I miss out on sort of the, the river of goodness, of shalom. And those thoughts that he can't contain or control are just messing with his mind. Some things you will not understand, no matter how many times you analyze, how many times you replay the scenes. I remember um, people would ask me, uh, in a difficult, painful season, they'd ask me about how I was feeling. And my answer to them was, well, I I feel confused. I just feel confused. And then it struck me like months down the line, like confused isn't an emotion. Confused is like a mental state. But but the pain and the circumstances were so difficult, I, I couldn't let my heart go anywhere. So I just said, I feel confused. And then I realized it. You know how I realized it? I read Asaph. And he taught me how to open my heart up to God. And some of you are in seasons where you need this psalm. They are the medicine cabinet for the soul. And Psalm 73 is a gift. Let me give you some others. Psalm 13, 22, 42, 43, 69, 77, these kept me alive. They may very well keep you alive on that thread you're hanging on. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, lay before the Lord what's in us, not what ought to be in us. For Asaph, the confusion, the hurt, the grief was so intense, it just felt like all these questions, he's just going nuts. It feels like insanity. 
Some of you can identify with that. You come in here with that kind of mental weight in your head and in your heart. You can feel this. The fourth thing, and maybe the deepest thing, is in verse 14. This is rock bottom in some ways. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's depressed. If you've ever been in a season like this, the mornings are the hardest. Long, lonely. And you don't get the sense that this guy's going through it like in a 24-hour period or even a week. You know, this is weeks, months, maybe even years. You need to know you have freedom in Jesus to have a broken heart, to grieve losses, to mourn. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, that means in order to feel and experience the comfort of God, then you've got to mourn. You've got to let your heart go into those places of pain, suffering, and brokenness. The brokenness of this world, the brokenness of life and your circumstances. Again, God is um, not just tolerating, but he's inviting you. He's speaking to your heart. We don't have a grid in America for suffering. And that's infiltrated the church culture. We only have a grid for success. There is an inverse relationship to the willingness in our heart to feel pain in the basement, in the dungeon, and the joy that comes in the morning. As we'll feel that, God will will be able to feel joy rather than kind of flatline. Make sense? Okay. Now, let's move from what happened and where his heart was to then what did he do? So you may be asking that. What, what do I do? What's the first step? I'm going to give you two smart things that this guy did. Number one, he spoke really carefully. Verse 15 If I'd said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He didn't vent to everyone. He didn't spew his pain and cast aspersions on God and his people, you know, from a blog or from a post or... No, he realized as an influential leader, and you all have influence in your circles, that he would derail younger believers in their faith. This is that verse. It doesn't mean don't live in denial, but I'm advocating wisdom in these places of pain. Um, It is crucial to gather a few friends to talk to, confide in, listen to your heart, to give you wisdom, truth, love, and outside perspective. Past um, weekend, my boys and I, we demoed our kitchen countertops, just took sledges and hammers and chisels. And it was just, speaking of things you enjoy, that was like a ball. And, um, well, we didn't have our safety glasses, so, you know, we wore sunglasses. Future's so bright, got to wear shades. So 
We are having just a glorious time. And it, it is, I mean, let's, it's half a miracle that we didn't take out the oven. Like, we were just going and missing stuff and all that kind of thing. Then we found the safety glass. It's like, oh, look what we're blown up. It's the countertops. Here's the point. Pain in those seasons can be a pair of blinders. The things you would have sworn to a week, a month, a year before are hazy and hard to see. And you need people to speak in your heart and your life. The second thing he did that was real smart, he didn't disengage from God and his people. Look at verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, and the whole feel of the psalm changes at that word, until I went to the sanctuary of God. In God's presence, with God's people, He feels shalom. Let me say this. There is a massive temptation, I would say even an undertow in the current of your heart to to detach, to to pull away from corporate worship and community, to sort of say, I got to figure it out on my own. I got to get objective. Don't do it. Swim against that undertow. Stay in the ring with God and his people. We don't know for Asaph, whether this was the first time or the 400th time he'd gone. We don't know. But he got a vision of God and it changed everything. His vision had been consumed with things on the horizon, right? the sin in the streets, the injustices, the circumstances. And his vision, by the grace of God, by the gift of God, got filled with God for for who he really is, himself for who he is under that, and then people and reality for how they are. And let me give you one word for that. Temporary. It may have happened in a millisecond. He saw all of these realities, all of these um, pieces of his life, of his world, through God's lenses. doesn't mean that everything's fixed now like a silver bullet, but it, it moves, his heart moves from this angry place of chaos to peaceful and a sense of resolve. You can see it. You can feel it. So that's two smart things that he did, right? He spoke carefully And he moved towards God and towards his people. Now, in that moment, what happened? What did he realize? I want to give you three things that I think dawned upon him from the text. Number one, God is a better judge. God is a better judge. End of 17, it says, Then I discerned their end. End literally means afterward. So, After all is said and done, after everyone has come and gone, justice will be done, which means whatever that person's out-of-control behavior is that you're dealing with, no one gets away with anything ultimately. And that's not just them, but that's you and that's me. Y'all, eternity is the great equalizer for everything. 
All of us will be judged for our actions. That's in the book. It's coming. It includes you and me. So there's no room for self-righteous arrogance in the people of God. This reality, that truth brought peace to Asaph because he could stop playing judge of who's winning and losing down here. Money, jobs, um, beautiful marriage, even someone married, kids, beautiful kids, fill in the blank. And he can offload that offense, that judgment from his desk to God's desk. And that's huge. And, and really, this prefigures, it, it's shadow, a shadow that points to the reality of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Because it's true. In the old covenant, God winked at sin. It looked like people are just getting away with sin. And you think another Noah's Ark moment needs to happen where we all get wiped out because there's all this going on. And you think, what will God do? And there you see at the cross of Christ what he does. He pours out everything of justice and his love on the body of his own son, God himself made flesh. So the power to forgive and offload to his desk comes from the power of being forgiven. Remember Jesus' words? Um, The one who's been forgiven much loves much. So God is a better judge. The second thing he realizes is he was wrong. He was wrong. And he gets it. Verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He repents. Now, why? Wasn't he the one that got the short end of the stick? Like, what did he do? As he looks back, he realizes that a bitterness had grown in his heart towards God and he judged God as not good because of what had happened. In your situation, that may not be true of you. You may not have gone there or done that. Only you and God would would know. But I can tell you from personal experience, it's really easy to judge God as withholding as distant, as unloving, might judge God as being like your dad or your grandpa or your uncle or whatever that may be. He stopped comparing himself to people and he started comparing himself to God and that's when he saw his sin. John Piper said, humility is the shadow of God. Humility is the shadow of God. The Asaph had set up this good guy versus bad guy thing, and he saw himself as the good guy, and everybody else is the bad guy. This really is the psalm of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. I can identify with this a lot, and it's coming from my heart, um, because in a season of life um, where I felt really rocked by Injustice, really betrayed by God. I felt set up and knocked down. Um, I made this decision in my heart. I journaled it and I kind of lived off it for a little while. 
said, God is first God, not first good. In other words, in my heart, I said, I didn't doubt his existence. I knew he had the right to call the shots. I knew he, you know, was over everything, created everything. But I couldn't agree in my heart that everything he did, everything he did was, was good. Separated his sovereignty and his providence. His providence is that he works all things together for good. I judged God and I realized it on down the road. When we judge God, we make him um, judge of his actions and his character. And if that's true of you, if you're in that place and you know it, then repent. Say, I'm sorry, I've done this. And these four heart conditions have fueled it. And those are true too. God is good, even in the greatest hell on earth. The last thing he realizes in this moment is that the good life gets redefined. I mean, it gets really turned upside down in a beautiful way. God is the good life, he realizes. God is the gospel. He moves from the hurt of not having one good thing and and being ticked um, to moving to the better good, the best good, the incomparable good of having God himself. Look at verses 23 and on. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In in the first 22 verses, God is hardly mentioned at all, but in three short verses you see you. Word for God, in six times you see it. So he, he moves from talking about God and about people and those coffee shop conversations that we're having to talking to God. If you've stopped talking to God, start back. I plead with you, start back. If that's dwindled down to a few seconds on a car ride and you chalk it up, I had my conversation, start back. Spend more time. Talk to God. See, the good life gets redefined from material prosperity that fed envy in comparison to to the good life of having his presence. He says the word, I am continually with you. It's not like at church or sanctuary or at community group. It's like, I get him 24-7 and I enjoy him. I get to be his son and being his son is better than being rich. Or having more stuff. The good life moves from getting your best life now and that feeding anger, you know, using God as a means to an end to the good life of being led through life by a father who cares and a friend who'll never leave 
and knowing that the good life isn't fully available now, but afterward in glory. When it comes to justice, because that goes off in our hearts like a four alarm fire, doesn't it? When it comes to justice, we may do other things, but two things I would urge you to do. You wait for it and you work for it. You wait for it. That means, I don't know about next year, but one day heaven, my heart, my body will be healed. Shalom. That's, that's the kind of thing where hopelessness can't have a hold when there is that great day focus. You work for it. There's many ways to talk about this, but let me just say Jesus said, you love your enemies. You bless those who persecute you. And you pray for those who spitefully use you. They win if you live a lifestyle of bitterness and envy and hostility and hatred that might be pent up in you in the deepest places. God wins and gets glory. If there's forgiveness and there's a Godward focus to your life. And love is the hardest thing in all that. The good life moves from being successful and popular and being liked as the good life to the better good of being known and liked by the most famous one in the universe. Think of that. The most famous one, the most worshipped one, the most praised one, more than any celebrity, more than any actor, more than any athlete is praised. The most worshipped one knows you by name, pursues you this morning, calls out to you, loves you with affection and with passion. That's not religious preacher talk. It's in here. You spend 10 seconds a day meditating on that for a month, it'll shift something in your heart. It's an identity filler. And lastly, the good life moves from physical and emotional health to my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Some of you, you're in these places of pain, chaos, anger, envy. That's the deepest reality. There's a deeper reality of the goodness of God. You've got to look on him. If he'd kept other goods as best goods, they would have become God's. God's saving him and saving us from idolatry. And that's a rescue. So to wrap up, this psalm ends right where it begins. And it's not with this sort of general statement with God is good to Israel, but it's an as for me. He says, as for me, what's good is to be near God. Being near God is the highest of goods than the good life that we try to swim in. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you'd say, yeah, I don't know God and I've got lots of questions and a lot of angst. We're so ravenously, radically glad that you're here. Thank you for having the courage to come. 
I just, I just want to say to you, we love you. We're honored that you're here. You're welcome. Come every week. You can belong here. You can be here. But the way you be, you be, the way you become near to God, the, the gospel in Christianity isn't sort of, he's a nice God doing nice things for nice people. That ain't it. Nearness to God is realizing your own stubbornness, your own sinfulness, your own me-centered lifestyle, and going, forgive me. I surrender. Make me new. I want to know what this guy knew. I want to hear that it's possible and not a pipe dream to be a son, to be a daughter of the living God. I want to know. That's available today. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Surrender your life. He just says, uh, give me all of you. Give me all of you. That's what he says. And of course, the only way we can know God is because of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. Because of what he suffered on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be free, so that we could be known, so we could be adopted.